it would be an understatement to just say that stories are powerful. Many of us start our day off by getting in a story, whether it's the scriptures or, or a different book or reading the news. We're constantly, as human beings, comparing and contrasting our story with those that we read about and the goings-on in the world. Every generation, uh, every time period is judged by those that, that have gone before. Stories are even used by many crafty children to try and belay bedtime, wanting to know a story about when you were a little kid, or tell me about Jesus, or the Trinity. Can you explain that, Dad? But today we're picking up the story of Paul in Jerusalem, where we left off from last week. It was the Feast of the Pentecost, and tens of thousands of Jews from other countries had gathered to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And it was there that they confronted Paul and falsely accused him in public of teaching against the laws of Moses. Now, Paul's life was in true danger. The mob had rushed upon him. They were beating him. And, and, and sectarian violence was not abnormal in the Jewish temple. In fact, the Romans were so concerned about it that they built the fortress of Antonia, named after Mark Antony, a personal friend of Herod. And from this vantage point, they could watch what was going on down below. And as the Jews were worshiping down in the temple and they saw this tower um, kind of peering over them, it was a stark reminder to them that even their sacred space of worship was in effect under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It was from this lookout tower that the Roman army had to intervene to keep the peace. And to do that, they put Paul in chains and isolated him from the mob. Now we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to read it in three sections. The first section, Acts 21, 37 through 22, 5, will be read by the Ackersons if you're live on Zoom, or by me if you're on the podcast or watching on YouTube. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out to the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren, and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. In the popular and amazing musical Hamilton, the character Aaron Burr meets a very young, very passionate, and vocal Alexander Hamilton. Now, the British Empire had soldiers everywhere. Revolution was in the air, and it was dangerous to speak about anything anti-British at the time. And so Aaron Burr pulls young Alexander Hamilton aside and he gives this advice. He says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. 
Aaron Burr is suggesting that Alexander Hamilton take his recipe for self-preservation. But Paul, who is in a very dangerous moment himself, is motivated by something else, something more than self-preservation. And throughout this narrative, we're going to discover just what that something is. And along the way, I believe that we're going to come to see that the good news in Paul's story is also good news for us. But for now, let's dig into some of the details of the story. Paul asks to be allowed to speak. Since he's addressing a Roman officer, he speaks in Greek. Now, this officer is surprised not only that he speaks Greek, but that his Greek is apparently very refined and, and well-educated. Up until that moment, the Romans thought that maybe Paul was an insurrectionist, like this notorious Egyptian zealot who had been a fugitive ever since he planned a failed revolt sometime earlier. Now, of course, most Egyptians at that time knew Greek. It had long since been influenced by Alexander the Great. But Paul's refinement and his accent gave the Roman officer pause. Paul is able to explain that he's actually born in Tarsus, which was a free city and well-known for classical education. Seeing that Paul was well-spoken and from a significant city, the Roman officer likely agreed to let him speak, thinking that he could solve any of the confusion that the crowd might have had. So now when Paul speaks to the crowd made up of Jewish uh, people and Jewish Christians, he switches languages from Greek to a Semitic language. It was either biblical Hebrew or most likely it was Aramaic, which was the everyday language for most Jews living in Jerusalem in the first century. Then Paul goes on to list his Jewish pedigree. He was born uh, in the educational center of Tarsus, but then he was raised most of his life in Jerusalem. He trained uh, under the venerable Rabbi Gamaliel, and he became an important Pharisee himself. He persecuted the church and even met with the high Jewish council and got orders directly from the high priest. You got to appreciate that most Jews, even religious leaders at that time, had never even met the high priest personally. He was so revered and kind of off limits. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a zealot of zealots. If anyone was passionate for the law and zealous to stop the movement of Jesus, it was him. And there's lots of people in that crowd who could have testified to that fact. What Paul is doing is building rapport with those who are against him. And the reason is because he loves them. He wants to build bridges so that they will care enough about what he has to say to listen to his message of salvation. Now, how does he do this? Well, he knows his story. In a moment, we're going to hear all about the Jesus part of Paul's story, but I want to point out the obvious, that all the parts of our story matter. So Paul has taken an honest inventory of his life into account. Nothing is neutral. Paul references the language he knows, and he appropriately applies them in the right context. He understands where he's from, where he was trained. He sees his ethnicity and his culture and his heritage. He sees it clearly. He takes into consideration his heritage and his citizenship, as we're going to see later on in the story. And Paul is honest about his sin. He's not proud that he was a persecutor of the church, but it's part of where he came from. It's part of the, the things that shaped who he is today. And if we're to truly understand our stories and where we fit, 
we would do well to take an honest inventory of our lives. What would it look like for you to take some time at the beginning of this new year to take a journal or for certain types, maybe make a spreadsheet, you know who you are, and and just to take an honest inventory of where you've come from and what you've learned and what experiences you've had. Maybe write down how your ethnicity, gender, family of origin, and education have, have all worked together to form you. What failures have you had? What might you be ashamed of? Every piece of it matters. And you may be thinking to yourself, that exercise sounds horrible. Why would we want to take the time, especially with the negative stuff? Why bring up things that might just cause us more shame? Well, the reason is because they're all part of our story. And in Christ, that story informs us, but it doesn't define us. We're going to see that in the next section of the story, Acts 22, 6 through 21. But it happened that while I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understood that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is not the first time that we've heard Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts, and it won't be the last. The first time we hear of Paul's so-called Damascus Road experience is in Acts chapter 9. On that occasion, we hear it from Luke, the narrator, the storyteller. But here in Acts 22, and again in Acts 26, we'll hear of Paul's experience with Jesus from his own recollection. Now, why would Luke give us this account of Paul's conversion narrative three times in one letter? We get it already. Well, maybe that's the point. 
Luke wants us to get it. He wants us to get the fact that Jesus is the one who changes everything. There is no Apostle Paul without the risen Jesus. There's no church without the transformative power of Jesus. There is no life without Jesus. Notice that in this moment, charged with national and religious fervor, Paul tells his story. Paul does not argue the finer points of doctrine or theology. He doesn't tell the angry mob that they're wrong or how they're blind to the truth. I mean, Paul is so capable of doing such things in the right setting, he can be very persuasive and very direct. But what he's aiming to do is not win a victory in debate. He's aiming to win over the hearts of people that he loves dearly. He will not be silent because he loves. Now notice that at every turn, Paul emphasizes the points of his story that would relate positively to his audience. For example, he was on the way to persecute followers of Jesus. He uses his Hebrew name in the story, Saul. He mentions eyed witnesses. He claims divine intervention. He names Ananias, who was a devout man by the standard of the law and was having a good reputation with all the Jews who lived in Damascus. He links the story of Jesus with the God of our fathers. He was praying in the temple when he received the word from the Lord. He's going to great lengths to show that he and his encounter with Jesus is not something new or over against Judaism and the law of God. He is part of the same biblical story. And yet, at the same time, while he believed he was obeying the law of God, Jesus encountered Saul on the road. He confronted him. He opened his eyes to the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of all he thought he was so passionate about. And Paul, the law-abiding Pharisee, was baptized. That's something Gentiles do to become Jewish, not something law-abiding Jews did. Paul saw the need to wash his sins away through faith and allegiance to Jesus. How has Jesus transformed your life? What can you give thanks for in Jesus' name? That might be something to add to your journaling exercise or your Excel spreadsheet, if that's you. Another thing to consider is, you know, a lot of times in churches we talk about how has Jesus transformed you or, you know, what was your conversion experience like? But that does injustice to two, two things. One is there's those among us who maybe haven't begun to trust Jesus. So I want to speak to you too. But also, if we're truly following Jesus, we are ever being converted. I am constantly finding new things I need to die to, new creative ways of sinning. And so another question would be, how do you need Jesus to transform you yet? Maybe you can write down a, a, a cry of help to him. See what happens. Now, as the story continues, Paul tells of praying in the temple, something that his audience would love. They would appreciate that. After all, that's what they were there to do. But Jesus has something else in mind for Paul. He would draw upon his story, his education, his Roman citizenship, and his Polish Greek, and he would send him to the Gentiles so that they might hear the good news of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. Let's hear this third part of the story, Acts 22, 22 through 29. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, 
He said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out to the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. God is the creator of all people, men and women. We're all made in his image. All people have intrinsic value to God. And from the very moment that we as a human species or, or group uh, rebelled against God, it was always his intent to redeem all of us. Not one group, not one gender, not one skin color, all of us. In Genesis 12, God sets about his plan by working in and through a couple named Abraham and Sarah, a pagan couple originally from a place associated with ancient Babylon. And he chooses to bless them and to bless all their descendants so that they would be a blessing to all other people and draw the nations in to know God personally. Now, as the story continued, these descendants of Abraham and Sarah continued to fail at their vocation. They were not being a light to the nations. And so God decided not to abandon them, but to do what they could not do. He would produce a Messiah, an anointed rescuer through the line of David, from the line of Judah, a descendant of Abraham. And this, this Messiah would fulfill their vocation to the nations. Paul is saying that this promised deliverer has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And his mission to the Gentiles, as well as to the Jews scattered all around the world, is a work of God and is in line with God's promises from the same scriptures that all of these mob people in the, in the temple, um, they all believe it. Now, why then did they reject him? Why, when Paul mentions being sent to the Gentiles, did they want to kill him? You know, we all love a good story until that story requires us to give up something. Maybe it's a particular possession we're overly attached to. Maybe it's the way we relate to people. Most often, it is the way of seeing the world and other people or our allegiance to a certain group or to a certain nation. We create stories in our minds and in our cultures. We tell them over and over again through our commercials and popular media and through our music to reinforce what we want to be true. And when those stories are challenged, it is easier to hold on to what we have rather than having to change. Our fear of change and losing what we have blinds us to the truth. 
Just a few days ago, white supremacists claiming to be patriots of our nation, some even claiming to be Christians, stormed our nation's capital to contest the election results because Donald Trump was defeated in a fair and legal process by the will of the American people. Most of this mob claimed that they were doing what is best for America. They've claimed to be motivated by a love for country that is built on ideals like liberty and justice for all and a free democratic process. But their claim to the love of freedom and justice for all is exposed as false. In reality, they want freedom and justice for people who are just like them. They fear change in the administration because under the current administration, they have felt emboldened to operate in the open, perpetuating hate and bigotry and violence. They have felt free on this occasion to erect a lynching post with a fully functional noose. They felt free to bring Confederate flags into the White House, to intimidate our elected officials, to steal government property, and they were largely unchecked by the authorities. After someone was shot and killed, after the situation was finally under some sort of control, there is this shot of a man, a representative from the new from New Jersey named Andy Kim, an Asian American politician who was terrified by the violence and intrusion of this mob. Kim said he was overcome by a sense of patriotism, and when he saw law enforcement officers cleaning up the ransacked capital, he went to work, cleaning up the mess one piece of trash at a time. I ask you, in this story, the angry mob or the humility of Andy Kim, which is more true to the America that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free? Don't miss the salient moment that for those of us who are white, our sisters and brothers of color are watching to see if we will stand up and condemn this behavior. And if we're white, we have the privilege of thinking about these things as a theory or, or from a distance. But for everyone else, this is the story of every day. The world is watching to see if the church condones this sort of Christian nationalism or if we will condemn this demonic mixture of faith in King Jesus on one hand and idolatry of political statehood on another. I ask you, which is more in line with the story of God? The angry mob who wanted to kill Paul because of his teaching or Paul who is joining his story with the story of Jesus to fulfill the story of God? to bring good news to the world that Jesus is Savior of all. Don't miss the irony that the Roman soldiers are witness to all of this discussion, and they are Gentiles. For the religious leaders, this was a cultural and theological discussion. But for those Gentiles in the mix, it would be whether or not they could become part of the story of God. Friends, how does the story of Jesus offend your sensibilities? I'm starting with each passing year to understand more and more, more and more how he offends my sensibilities. How are we tempted to close our hearts and to stop our ears to the call of Jesus because we're afraid to change or to give something up that we've counted on as secure or just part of the landscape of our lives? How is Jesus inviting you to continue the process of transformation in his likeness?
May the Lord of grace and truth, the King of heaven and earth, continue to draw us into his story and to show us in his mercy how we need to die to the lies that we've believed so that we can live in the light of his kingdom. Let it be.